Jason. I'm part of the team of Invest Atlantic. In 2010, when we started, we had 125 people. We had seven investors with an investment pool of approximately $12 million at the table. Today, we have over 35 investors that have come from across North America, three from the U.S., and we have over 250 registered attendees. And the in capital pool is, uh, angel capital pool is approximately right now in this room going to exceed $500 million. We're going somewhere. It's all about collaboration. I'd like to introduce our, one of our co-chairs. He'll be introducing Patrick uh, Farrar, our second co-chair shortly. But uh, Alex, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being the glue on this. And uh, please come on up. Alex Macbeth. Thank you very much, Bob, and uh, welcome, uh, everyone. Welcome to Charlottetown. This is the uh, ninth edition of, of Invest Atlantic and the first time that it's been held in PEI. We have startups from across Atlantic Canada. As Bob mentioned, we have investors from across Atlantic Canada, from Toronto, from Calgary, from New York, and elsewhere. So it is really pulling together that early-stage startup community and our investors. As Bob mentioned, I do want to acknowledge our sponsors. And we have a long list of sponsors have been supportive, not just with checks, but in a very tangible way. And I do want to particularly thank two, uh, two major sponsors. First is ACOA, the whole Atlantic team. They've been, been supporters of Invest Atlantic since the beginning. Jeff Mullen down here. And not just Invest Atlantic, but the, the support that ACOA gives to the business community generally and particularly to the startup ecosystem. And it truly is a great relationship. The second sponsor I want to mention is Innovation PEI. And they came on board as a major sponsor of this event. But it's not just, once again, a check for this event. It is the support that they give to business in a very tangible way and the team that we work with over there on a regular basis whether it be Dave Keedwell, Shane McDougall, Julie, and the whole team. It is a great relationship, and we're lucky to have those types of, that type of support in the business community in PEI. Now, we have a very dynamic ecosystem here in PEI that is growing, that is, there's a tangible energy uh, to it. Uh, there's a lot of good things happening here on PEI and in Charlottetown. Before I introduce our Premier, I want to announce official launch of a new initiative that is intended to support, further support the PEI ecosystem. I moved back to PEI about four and a half years ago. I've been away for 30 years. And you move back and you experience a number of things. The first is the degree of connectedness on PEI. And there truly is maximum two degrees of separation on PEI. And I tell everybody that will listen to me, never underestimate the competitive advantage that two degrees of separation gives you. You do not see that in Toronto, where I lived for 15 years, London, England, where I've lived. That is not that reality. The second thing we noticed when I moved back was an incredible amount of people living on the island that had national or international experience. There were people like myself, a comebacker, people that had decided to retire here uh, for one reason or other, people that summer here. So it's just all these people on the island with national, international experience. And as you talk 
to people on the island, you hear about all the islanders that are working in various parts of the world, in senior executive roles in Toronto, Boston, New York, Silicon Valley, London, England. So what would happen if you actually tried to pull all of that talent, all that experience, that network together? And so what we're doing is launching something called PEI Bridge. And what that is intended to be is to create a network, create connections that link island companies to access the talent, capital, and markets around the world. Our mission is to build a global network of accomplished professionals and experienced entrepreneurs across industries to share their experience and knowledge and commit to helping PEI companies. That's all about guidance. It's all about mentoring. It's all about steering them in the right direction. It's about the connectivity that I talked about. And it's about helping to scale the ecosystem here. It's helping to scale individual companies. And so we've launched this. This is the official launch today. We've, it's been up and running now for, for uh, six weeks or a couple of months. I'm going to give you just a couple of very quick examples of how this can actually work in a tangible way. And we had, we had a gentleman that uh, was on PEI. He's not from the island. He's a tech entrepreneur, successful exits in Toronto and Cleveland. His wife is from Vernon River. So he spends a couple months here in the summertime. And he came into the startup zone just to find out what was going on. He had an interest in the whole startup space. We met him. Uh, thought he'd be a great candidate to be a member of PEI Bridge. He wanted to meet our team at Island Capital Partners, talking about our portfolio. And he said, I have some, one of our investments, one of our portfolio companies is Onset Communications in the, in the film industry. And he said, I have some experience in the film industry. So he goes back to Atlanta the next day, because uh, term was starting. His wife is a professor at Georgia Tech. And he uh, introduces Brian's product to the Georgia Film Academy. And then introduces Brian to that community. Brian from Onset is now flying to Atlanta this fall to demo his product to the Georgia Film Academy and to the major studios that are resident in Atlanta. So that's real connectivity. That is real advice to an island PI startup company. We have an islander, native islander, who is a controller at one of the divisions of Apple in San Francisco. Pretty cool. Uh, so she is going to be on the island next week. She's going to come down to the startup zone, hear what's going on here, meet us at Island Capital, uh, meet up with a couple of companies here in that space. So what great connection to have someone at Apple as a, as a link to the valley, maybe a speaker here, and whatever. So all of these are examples of how we can bring all that experience to, to uh, help PI companies access capital, access talent, and access markets around the world. And we are intending to create a network of approximately 100 people. So I hope to come back in another year and tell you how all of that, all of that has gone. But it's off to a great start at this point in time. It's now my pleasure to introduce our premier. And I've known Wade for over 50 years probably. And I could, I got a bio from the province and uh, I could read that, but you could, but if you got Wikipedia, if you got Wikipedia, you can look them up. It's all there. All right. It's, uh, it's UNB Law School. It's Yale Law School. It's a Supreme Court clerk. It's uh, professor of law at Dalhousie University. It's dean of law at UNB. 
uh, and as president of, of uh, UPI for many, many years. What I really want to talk about is his commitment and his, and the, his government's commitment to business on PEI and particularly to early stage companies. And I'm sure he'll talk about the investment that this province has made in the startup zone, in Launchpad, in Innovation PEI, Immigration Initiative. And that support is real and it's tangible. Now we're lucky in PEI, and I don't very often say this about politicians, believe me, okay? But our Premier Wade comes from one of the most iconic, successful entrepreneurial families in PEI. Our Minister of Finance, Heath, comes from a tech startup background. Our Minister of Economic Development comes from a small business startup background. Our Deputy Minister of Economic Development comes from the private sector in 25 years at Irving. So it's not that we always agree, and we don't always get all that we want, although we do pretty well, but it does allow that conversation to start at a whole different level and a whole different level of understanding. So that has allowed some of the collaboration that Bob talked about and that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. So we thank him for joining us today, and once again, that's another tangible example of his interest in the business community, supporting the business community, and in supporting the entrepreneurial ecosystem here. So please welcome uh, our Premier Wade McLaughlin. Good afternoon, everyone. Bonjour tout le monde. Um, thank you, Alex, for the invitation and for the introduction. Congratulations to you and Patrick as co-chairs, to you, Bob, as the founder of Invest Atlantic, and uh, to everyone who's responsible for this great event taking place here today. It wouldn't happen without investors. It wouldn't happen without entrepreneurs and people who are in the startup uh, space. Uh, it wouldn't happen without sponsors. Uh, and it wouldn't happen without a whole group of uh, people who support this from the uh, public side in the federal, provincial, and other uh, regards as we build a dynamic startup climate or ecosystem in Prince Edward Island. Let me start with a, a small disclosure that builds on Alex's introduction. I was actually born in a startup. Um, I was the third to arrive uh, in our family, uh, and we lived at that time in a small apartment above a, a country store uh, that my father started at the age of 18 with $1,300 that he managed to scrape together. I don't know how remarkably uh, as a laborer in what you could get paid for doing uh, as a teenager in wartime PEI in Halifax. But uh, as Alex suggested, it went on from there, uh, and I got a lot of lessons uh, right there. One of the lessons that we got at home was called FHB, which is Family Holdback, and on your tables there are two, uh, only two copies of a, a document that talks about uh, the mighty island and what's going on here. But uh, let me start on this point. Um, uh, and basically, it's, it's an important one when you're uh, sitting in the chair that I do. Um, our total approach to the, what you're here talking about is success breeds success and growth will produce growth. 
And our first contribution to this, or our first kind of, I'll say, perspective on this as government is that startups will do well in a, an economic environment that is growing. Uh, so let me say a word about that without uh, belaboring the point. Uh, Prince Edward Island, this is out of the normal, uh, Prince Edward Island in 2016 had the third highest growth among the provinces after BC and Ontario. In 2017, it had the third highest growth among the provinces after BC and Alberta, or Alberta and BC in that order. Uh, and in 2018, uh, the conference board has us slated to lead the provinces and to probably come second in 19. That's a hard run to put together because that's usually, it's always measured in terms of how well or poorly you did the previous year. Uh, but that says something about uh, what's going on uh, in our province. Uh, last year we hit 3.2% uh, real growth. Uh, that's breathtaking uh, in the current kind of global uh, climate, certainly in the developed economy climate, uh, we've got a pretty good shot at hitting that or in that range uh, again this year. Uh, in uh, 2017, we had growth uh, in 18 of 20 sectors of the economy, and the two that didn't quite make it uh, were, they didn't do too badly, uh, they were our crops uh, they had a dry year. Um, so a couple of points to take from that. Uh, Prince Edward Island has a diversified economy, I might even argue the most diversified of, of the provinces in our country. Uh, it has an integrated economy and that builds on what Alex said, people know each other, they find opportunities together, if somehow they get a setback in this part of the province they'll find a way, even kind of still sleeping in the same bed, to go and try something somewhere else, they'll find someone who can help them out or help them learn from experience. Uh, and it's a, really what you can say about a place that's essentially rural is that we have a metropolitan economy. Uh, people know each other, things happen, uh, there's a lot of uh, shared growth. Another thing, and you'll see it for those who are looking at that uh, document that I left at the table, and I'm really proud of this, and it's, it's, it's actually a, one of the key contributors to our growth. We have the lowest degree of inequality of any of the provinces in Canada. That's to say the difference between the top, uh, say, 20% and the bottom 20%. And that creates in itself an environment where people will start things or where they won't be shy about uh, kind of giving, giving something a crack. And where if a few dollars do show up, they're likely to go into circulation. And it's an efficient economy in that sense. And actually, it's one of my concerns about some of our larger economies is that there is so much inequality that it isn't efficient in terms of getting some new money um, to move around. We've led the country in uh, last year, may well again, in immigration on a per capita basis. That helps. Uh, you can see it in this room. We can see it yesterday at Export Day. It's a big part of bringing talent, diversity, bringing new ways of putting things uh, together. Uh, it, 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 it's inevitable with that kind of renewal. We are also encouraging uh, people to come home. Uh, we've got a whole campaign uh, called Maybe It's Time to Come Home, and I know there are people in the room who are actually have, are doing that, Alex being a good example of it, Patrick reclaiming you even if it's one step removed, and uh, the, uh, uh, it's, all, it's all good. The, let me say what I think one of the challenges 
will be time. Uh, this is a particular moment. This is uh, something that didn't just come along by accident, and it's not going to stay this way uh, unless we all collectively see it as a matter of, I'll call it urgency, of opportunity, of uh, something that we can, in fact, keep going, uh, provided we have days like we have here today, that there are initiatives come out of it, that people start things, some work, some don't, they grow, and uh, that's a very big part of uh, what we should all have on our minds. Don't, don't underestimate the challenge of time or that, uh, the very simple fact that time is our enemy. If we use it well, it's not. The, tell you a few things we're doing as a government. Because frankly, we have got more capacity than we're used to having uh, as a government, and I don't exaggerate that. We're still running a pretty modest uh, shop, and that's important. But in our most recent budget, here are some of the things we did at, I'll call the macro level, uh, that contribute to an environment of startup growth. Uh, we dropped uh, half a percentage point off the small business tax rate, corporate tax rate and indicated that uh, we have it fully in mind to drop another half point off as uh, soon as we can. Um, we put in, and I'm really proud of this, a kind of an accelerated capital investment, but we're not too fussy about what people think of as what's necessary to call capital, but an opportunity for small businesses to spend 25000 on whatever they think is the most useful thing to grow their business and uh, allow them to uh, write that off on an accelerated basis. And I think it's a good example of uh, modest. Frankly, if you look at the numbers, it's probably not going to cost us that much, uh, and we'll get it back one way or another. Uh, but, you know, it's what a government can do, and we'll keep doing it year after year. But 25000 bucks uh, accelerated right off is, uh, is, is more than a drop in the bucket. And it's, it's another signal about doing things in a timely way and do what, leave businesses to decide what they think is the most important thing to do. Here's another thing that is in our most recent budget that I'm really proud of. Uh, we have uh, an accelerated or an automatic write-down of uh, student loan debt. So for anyone who is a Prince Edward, filing a Prince Edward Island tax return, uh, if you've got a student loan, we're knocking $3,500 off tax-free uh, automatically for four years in a row. And that's real money. You know, it's money in your pocket. You know, do something else with it. And it also attracts and it keeps around the kind of people that we see in this room who are of a mind to uh, you know, start something. So those are some of the macro things. They're not the only ones. Uh, uh, that, that we're doing, but I think a government, oh yes, we've got a population action plan, and that's been huge. It's brought the fastest growing population of any province in Canada. It brought last year, for the first time in 50 years, I'm proud of this, we reduced our median age by two-tenths of a year. That's, demographers will tell you, how do you do that? But once you start, i got a secret for you. It's easier to keep it going. Uh, but we're getting younger. We now have as many people between the age of 0 and 14 of Prince Edward Island as the province of, actually more as a percentage of the population than has the province of Ontario. 
so once you start getting younger, once just people are around, they see things, they're doing things, and we're growing uh, our population. So let me turn, without pretending that that exhausts what you might say about the macro uh, environment, to the particular initiatives uh, in and around startups. Uh, so when I came to government, we were, and I'm not saying it's because I came to government, but it's nice to show up and it's, there's an opportunity to do something. Uh, one of the first things we did was initiate the startup zone, uh, modeled on the DMZ at uh, Ryerson and with uh, their uh, uh, help and assistance. And it's um, certainly something that I don't mind saying, and it's useful to say in a room that's about startups, that it doesn't help to mimic success. But that has succeeded and uh, continues to produce uh, graduates uh, at, a, at, a, at a rate that we can be proud of. Um, we have had, in the period 2013 to 2017, more than a doubling, I'm told 121%, so I'll repeat it, of the number of startups in Prince Edward Island. That's growth. Uh, we today have, uh, in Greater Charlottetown, a greater density or a, more, a greater number of startups per thousand population than any of the other uh, cities in, in, the, in the region. Halifax would be second. Further thing that we did was build on and expand uh, our, the activities of our Launchpad incubator with programs uh, around that, and there are people in the room who've been a part of uh, those programs, both from a public service point of view and as, as beneficiaries. And the third was to be in the matrimonial bid uh, for the creation of Island Capital Partners. Uh, and uh, that has been a success that we've, I'm sure that you've heard about in the course of the day and uh, has already seen a number of uh, investments. And, and what I want to say about Island Capital Partners, and it's uh, uh, great that we're, we're saying it in this room and with you here, Alex, and with Stephanie here, um, is that what we're talking about here is a lot more than you know, dollar signs or the kind of investments that uh, we say fuel uh, growth. It's about partnership, it's about relationships, it's about guidance, mentoring, not making mistakes that you don't have to make. And I know as I look around the room, there are lots of people who uh, have a few decades on us uh, who have brought uh, that success. Some may not have that many decades. Matt, you're going to tell us about some of that, so I won't take up uh, the time uh, that people that we have to, to hear you. But let's all remember, whether we are starting something or looking for an investor or trying to encourage a climate of uh, growth, uh, that a lot of this is about experience and encouragement. And don't any of us sit in this room today and think we don't need encouragement. Uh, it's probably the most important thing in terms of uh, startups getting going or, most important, keeping going. I was at Export Day yesterday and uh, to look around the room there and see uh, the people uh, that were there doing great work, starting things, hustling, uh, looking after relationships with customers, um, making sure that you're constantly improving service, quality, uh, product development. Uh, these are all fuel 
for a successful entrepreneurial and startup ecosystem in every in every way and to the same degree as as is the need for capital. Uh, so it all comes together. Uh, we appreciate uh, what you, Bob, and Invest Atlantic got started in 2010, what it means for this group to be here, what it says to have the full house uh, that we do. And finally then, uh, let me uh, congratulate uh, your group, uh, Alex, on starting the PEI Bridge. Uh, that's something that you know I've talked about myself or I've heard people talking about for a long time. Uh, and it's like everything else, just take someone who actually has a vision for it and believes it can be done to get at it. Uh, and uh, uh, I, as Premier, uh, appreciate, uh, and I'm sure the province will over time appreciate, uh, the people of the province will appreciate, uh, what it means to have uh, that, uh, that PEI bridge group. So we're calling PEI the mighty island. Small can be big. We can do great things. We can even surprise ourselves. Uh, and we can always uh, surprise anyone who uh, doesn't have high expectations for us. But I've got high expectations for everyone in this room, and I'm looking forward to sitting down and hearing what Matt has to say. And thanks uh, to all of you for each of, and each of you for your part in what I know is a story about growth and success. Thank you. Merci. Thank you very much, uh, Wade. We uh, certainly uh, appreciate uh, your joining us today. Uh, more important, as importantly, uh, we certainly appreciate uh, your tangible support uh, and your government's tangible support for the business community and for the entrepreneurial uh, startup community. As you've, as you've heard from Wade, there's a pretty darn good story going on here. Uh, there's a lot of good things, and that doesn't happen by one initiative or one individual. I think it's, it's a whole series of interconnected initiatives uh, that create the story that Wade just told, that create the dynamism and the, and, the, and the strength that the entrepreneurial startup community has. So thank you for the investment. Now, we also, it, it can't stop. There needs to be continued investment. And just a heads up, Mr. Premier, that uh, Stephanie and I did a pitch, presentation to a number of deputy ministers about a week ago on some ideas as to what investment could look like over the next year or two to continue to fuel uh, this growth. So thank you very much. Now it's my pleasure to introduce uh, the co-chair of this event, uh, Patrick Farrar, who is the new CEO of the Startup Zone. Now, uh, in one of the other hats that I wear, uh, I'm chair of the board of the Startup Zone. And it's been going now for a little over two years. Uh, and this spring, uh, we needed to identify uh, a new CEO. Uh, and we had someone, the initial CEO had uh, gone on maternity leave and then actually caught the entrepreneurial bug and rather than coming back, started her own business. Uh, and uh, we had an interim who ended up getting a great opportunity uh, and took that. So we had to find a new CEO. What we wanted to do was find someone that we could, that could lead that, build on the success and lead it forward. Patrick uh, certainly impressed the uh, selection nomination committee. Uh, the board enthusiastically endorsed him. 
Patrick is, a, is an entrepreneur himself. He's from Atlantic Canada, uh, and uh, he was co-founder of Venture for Canada, which was an initiative to uh, identify uh, graduating business students who had an interest in working in a startup in a startup type of company. Now, Patrick is a very bright guy, lots of opportunity, lots of potential uh, things he could do. So he just wasn't coming because uh, we told a good story. He did his research. And part of his research was, was learning kind of what was going on here and the, 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 what was happening in the, in the PEI entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem. And he wanted to be part of that. And so he joined us on uh, middle, of, middle of July. So it's my pleasure now to introduce Patrick Farrar, uh, the co-chair of this event and the CEO of the Startup Zone. Patrick. Thank you. That's, uh, that's great. Really appreciate that, Alex. It's been absolutely wonderful uh, to work with you, um, and I think it just shows that connectivity that's happening here on the island in terms of people, great people that you can uh, have access to and are willing to help and support you. So thanks so much for bringing me on board. Thank you, Bob, for pulling this all together. Um, couldn't have done it without you, obviously, in a short time frame. Been absolutely wonderful working with you, so thanks so much. And uh, Wade, yeah, thank you as well. Uh, great little speech there, and I was actually a lot of points I was going to say about the greatness of PEI. So appreciate you echoing it, and uh, you know, have personal relationships with all these folks. And I feel like, it, yeah, when you're in Toronto, that's that's hard to do, um, but it, it can happen. As I have only been here for two months, but uh, I feel like I'm part of a family now. So really appreciate it. Um, and so I guess I'll just jump right into it here. And so we're working with the other Atlantic provinces. Uh, I'm very excited to announce a partnership, a uh, formal partnership with the Volta Health Incubator in Halifax. And so we've partnered up with them to collaborate and share programming and resources among a, a series of other different things. And we're in chats with the other provinces to do this with all four. And so we're super excited about it. There's a lot of exchanging of solutions, ideas, failures that we can all um, learn from, and it's already happening. So more of that to come, and we're so excited to see everyone come together. We're also connected with the DMZ, growing relationship there. District 3, which is also the incubator in Montreal, connected with Concordia, um, and many, many more to come. Uh, what I love about Atlantic Canada, tons of sev like several well-funded companies scaling every year in every province. What I love the most is the access to community, kind of what I was mentioning earlier, having access to these amazing people who are two degrees, one degree away from you. Um, it's been absolutely amazing to kind of share these conversations. You can get a room of top-level executives, whether you're in the government or you're a big corp, small, medium business, uh, get everyone together in a day. And that just doesn't happen. I don't see that. I've lived a lot of places in Canada, and I have a hard time seeing that. So that's what makes this so amazing of a place. You can get stuff done very quickly. You make decisions, you execute, and you follow through with that. And that's what I love. That's why I came here after living four years in Toronto. Um, just smart, driven people, 
um, coachable, you know, listen, want to do well, they're passionate, they want to grow a business, they want to create a business. Um, and so I absolutely love that. And that kind of leads into why we invited Matt here. Matt really shares a lot of those values from my perspective. Uh, no, I've had the pleasure of knowing Matt um, before a few of his companies uh, and while his time at Deloitte and getting to see him. We've gotten to know each other even more through the start of his companies and it's been uh, wonderful to watch. And you know, again, a relentless guy, smart, passionate, coachable. And so I'd like to formally introduce Matt. He, uh, if you don't know who he is, and I am gonna do the wiki intro, um, he's the founder of Aeon, a world-leading blockchain protocol designed to solve the most prevalent challenges limiting blockchain's mainstream adoption, which is scalability, interoperability, and governance. He serves as the CEO of the Aeon Foundation, and prior to this company, he, was, he had founded the Deloitte's first blockchain team called Rubix. He's an active and founding board member of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and a founding director of the Blockchain Technology Coalition of Canada. Since the earliest days of blockchain, he's been a leading advocate for the potential social benefits of decentralized technologies and is working actively to establish fair and responsible rules and principles for the future governance of this important new industry. Matt believes blockchain is a revolutionary tech that has the potential to solve some of the world's greatest online challenges. So without further ado, let's give Matt a big round of applause. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for having me. Um, and thanks, Pat, and everyone I've met so far today for the warm welcome. Great to be here. Uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this industry. So, so quickly, I'm going to talk to you a, not about the technology itself, not so much about cryptocurrency. I want to talk to you about what I view as the possible downstream impact and consequences of this technology achieving scale over the course of the next you know, 10, 20, or maybe more years than that. Uh, I think we're at the beginning of a very important paradigm shift that will impact most industries that we know and work with today. And I'll try to give you a little bit of a flavor as to why I think that is and, uh, and why most people are probably misinterpreting what the blockchain industry is all about. So, yeah, quickly uh, back up for a second that Pat just mentioned, but I'll talk a little bit more about the Aeon Foundation later on. Uh, but just to give you a quick synopsis as to who we are, we're about a two-and-a-half-year-old organization uh, headquartered in Toronto with offices in uh, Shanghai and Barbados, uh, about 75 people. Um, and we've been building this software uh, that is a blockchain network and a blockchain protocol called Aeon. Uh, we're a nonprofit open source software foundation. Um, a little bit unique in our industry is that many of the projects that we develop are open source by nature, so we, we don't have a traditional kind of software revenue model. Uh, but we've also been doing a lot of work domestically in terms of figuring out what are the obstacles and limitations that are stopping some of the mainstream adoption of this technology. If you read the press about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, you probably more often than not read negative news and read the hesitations of government and the hesitations of banks to interact with this new technology because it looks and feels somewhat different and scary to many. Um, but I'm going to try to step back and give you some perspective as to why I think that's just kind of a short-term impediment to our long-term uh, scale. So, you know, quickly, um, before I jump into what blockchains are, I want to step back and talk a little bit about, you know, some historical context. Um, if you've read these two books, you're probably familiar with a little bit of the history of, you know, the evolution of human civilization, the evolution of society, why certain things are the way they are, why our countries are structured the way they are, and why human populations have come to be organized in a certain way. 
And the reason I want to start here is because I think this is kind of fundamentally what we're talking about. Cryptocurrencies and blockchains and decentralized technologies are essentially a second kick at the can on how do we organize human behavior and human activity. So it's significantly larger than a payment system. Um, if you were to look at these two books or any other kind of historical records from this time, you'd find that across millennia, across geographies, we had very, very similar societal evolutions, whether we're in North America, Asia, Africa, Populations around the world organized themselves very similarly. They came together in tribes and clans, eventually into kingdoms and empires and nation states. And we did this because of a limitation as to how the information around the world flowed. We did this because geographical limitations were obvious and people had to move with limitations based on climates, how resources were allocated around the world. So we organized society and we've kind of moved on on that basic framework. We've come to today's fabric of modern society, which looks a lot like some of these historical fabrics. We're still organized by geography. We're still organized based on national borders. We're still organized based on some of these historical contexts that we've never gone back and questioned. Now, what was true during this time in history, the last several thousand years, is that when you looked at the growth in population, it looked like we were living in a very linear, growing population. Things were not changing all that dramatically. And technologies were not changing all that dramatically. Most people in history were born and died in a context that looked exactly the same. They were, died in an era, they, they were born in an era of, you know, stone tools, and they died in an era of stone tools. Or they were born in an era of, uh, of the printing press, and they died in that same era. Recently, obviously, a lot has changed. We're one of the first generations or first collections of generations that sees very, very, very constant and accelerating pace of change in our lives. The way we came into the world is going to be very different than the way we leave this world. And that's very unique to our generation, which is not something that's shared by many of the people who came before us. So does this change anything about some of these fundamental structures of society that we've come to accept as normal? Um, so I'm going to tell you why I think decentralization and why I think blockchains actually might be the key to this big societal evolution that we might face in front of us. The big challenges we face today over the last 20 years is we've all become accustomed to a global technology we call the internet. We interact with each other without borders, we transact with each other around the world, and we're generally free to do what we want in this global domain and this global ecosystem. But that scaling global technology is being regulated and controlled by local institutions, governments that live within one border, that live within one jurisdiction, and it's very difficult for them to apply this kind of local context on this global technology. And we're seeing this around the world now with new initiatives like the GDPR initiative out of Europe, which is a new privacy-protecting initiative that, people are, that, that governments in Europe are trying to place on companies that interact online. And all of these things are well-intentioned, but obviously we face a challenge. Governments and traditional institutions don't scale at the pace that technology scales. So we end up with this growing gap. Um, you know, this is the first time that I give a talk like this with a premier in the room, so I'll try to make this not sound too critical of our current institutional structures. I'm just trying to open the dialogue a little bit at a higher level so that we can understand why I think this is so important. Now, the one thing that's true throughout this period of history, whether you're looking at ancient civilizations and how they were built, or more modern civilizations and how they were built, um, or the way our governments were built around the world, whether democratic governments or autocratic governments or, or, or monarchies, whatever the case might be, or the largest corporations that we all use products and services from, or even our large central banks. They all share one very, very similar commonality. And that's this idea of hierarchy, this idea that the best way to consume information 
digest that information and make decisions is through hierarchical structures. And so this is true if you look across most institutional structures around the world. This diagram probably reflects how most of them are built. That at the bottom layer, whether you're interacting with customers, you, you consume information. That information makes its way up the ranks of a company, and decisions are made at an executive level and passed down. At one point in history, this was probably the most efficient way to operate. You know, you had governments operating across vast geographies where phones didn't exist, and it was difficult for a national government in Ottawa to make a decision based on information coming in from Vancouver. So they had these layers of government hierarchy that were built to kind of transmit that information so that decisions could be made efficiently. As the pace changed, this structure has started to become very challenging. We see this on a constant basis. You look down in the U.S. today, you know, big controversial debate around things like um, uh, gun control in the U.S. Meanwhile, on the other side of the equation is 3D printing starting to in introduce the fact that I can print a gun in my home. So what is the difference between the political debate and the technological debate? Well, there's a big gap. Politicians don't know that 3D printers are printing guns in their homes, but they're still debating the same old ways of doing gun control. And I think this is just a big systemic challenge that's going to become even more accelerated and even more pronounced as technology becomes a significantly larger part of our lives. Um, now, this was obviously, this has worked very, very well historically. It turns out that as we evolved as society, as we evolved as people, that beyond 30, you know, uh, homo sapiens sitting around a fire, it became very difficult to make decisions by consensus. It became very difficult to make decisions without some sort of leadership structure. Um, and that was generally because of a restriction of information. Not everybody had all the data. So all of a sudden, you needed to rely on somebody who could collect all that data and make information-based decisions for us. That's very different than the world we live in today, obviously. We all have access today to more information than the President of the United States did 50 years ago. And so what does that change in the way that we evolve as a society? Um, so if we go a little bit farther than... Um, than what that looks like historically. I want to talk to you quickly about this, this um, what we call a grand challenge. So is anybody familiar with the organization called Singularity University? Does that ring a bell to anybody? Okay. So Singularity University is an is a in interesting educational program out of Silicon Valley uh, that I've, I've recently joined the faculty of. And Singularity University has this mission of kind of addressing all the greatest grand challenges of the world. These are grand challenges of energy, um, uh, scarcity, these are grand challenges of water, of, of war, of, of, you know, missions to the moon and to Mars and beyond. And one of the 12 grand challenges that they've articulated as to one of the things that's going to be very, very complicated for humanity to solve is governance. And they see this as one of the restricting challenges that means that most technologies that we try to push into the market will run into an obstacle of governance. An obstacle of, you know, being built in one jurisdiction and having to sell products in another, or an obstacle of having, you know, some sort of new domain that you're introducing to the world that laws and regulations never contemplated. And I can speak very much about this in the context of cryptocurrencies, where we deal with ambiguity and lack of clarity in law and regulation every day. Um, so, you know, quickly to summarize what they're talking about is that the idea being that as technology and information is more equally distributed around the world, we've run into new challenges, challenges of information protection and privacy and, you know, consumer-owned data and, you know, all of a sudden we start thinking about Facebook and who's own, who owns my data and who's monetizing on it. These are problems that we've never had to deal with before. Uh, and so one of the big grand challenges that the world faces is how do we govern ourselves more efficiently? And the impact of technology 
to change this problem has been a big challenge because the traditional hierarchical centralized structures that we've introduced to the world over the course of the internet era have led to us relying very heavily on companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook to become increasingly large parts of our lives. And we didn't really notice or pay attention to the fact that we made these trade-offs over the last 20 years, but we did. And so now we're trying to propose that there might be a second kick of the can, a new design for how we might, um, you know, how we might interact with each other in the future. So what's changed recently? So two things have changed recently. One, you know, if you compare this to the historical context where people were not connected and information did not flow and we were geographically confined, you look at the last hundred years and you realize that that's completely changed. We're now perfectly connected. We now can move freely around the world with relative ease. Uh, we can chat with people in China just as easily as we can chat with our neighbor. Uh, information is flowing very, very quickly. The other thing that's changed is that we've recently noticed if you look at the, you know, the long part of this graph, it looks for a long time like population was growing on a linear scale. And all of a sudden we realize, oh, crap, we're not growing on a linear scale anymore. We're growing on an exponential scale. And that means that the complexity of these challenges is getting more, more complicated. So with a change in how fast technology is evolving and in a change in how fast population is growing, we have to come back and ask, is this still the appropriate governance structure for the future of humanity? Is this the appropriate governance structure that's going to take us to Mars and it's going to take us to the next great challenges that humanity has to solve? So there's a couple of things to, you know, to put this into perspective as to what do we normally, what are the normal things that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis? And there's four things that I've kind of thought through. One is the fact that, generally speaking, we all live locally. We all participate in local community. We live in cities or rural communities. These are where our physical requirements are met. This is where I go to the grocery store to get food and how I walk down the sidewalk to get to work. So at that level, you know, we have a good amount of collaboration to put in place local governments that, that satisfy these needs for us, that satisfy public transportation and, and, you know, financing our education systems and things like that. The other thing that's true still is that we all transact internationally. We buy products on Amazon. We, we buy services on the Internet. We, uh, we ship things around the world on large shipping containers, and we no longer just rely on our local economies to satisfy our goods and services. Increasingly, we're interacting digitally. And, you know, this might look like this in the future, or it might look like chatting on Facebook Messenger or whatever the case might be, but this is going to become a larger and larger part of our social lives that our friends and our circles of influence may not be the people we know physically, but they may be communities of interest that we share online, that we all participate in a forum where all of a sudden I might have more in common with someone I know on the Internet than I have in common with my neighbor. And what does that change about the structure of society? But we're all still sitting on the same rock traveling through space, so we all still share a fate. So these are, you know, problems of climate change and pl uh, problems or, or, you know, oper I just watched the video of... Uh, of Elon Musk's new, um, new announcement about the mission to the moon that they're doing in the next few years. These are big, grand human challenges that we all share. If we go back to this idea of how we've built traditional governance structures, the simplest example to lay alongside this is how we've built governments. If we look at Canada, we have, in some way, shape, or form, a layer of government that represents us at each of these levels. We have international collaboration among countries. We have our national and federal governments, our provincial governments, all the way down to our local governments. I live here, but I'm part of this kind of human global civilization up here. So in my mind, that begs the question of what's everything in the middle for? 
Uh, and I recognize that there's a provincial premier in the room. Uh, and, and so I just want to, I want to open up this crazy idea that once every couple of hundred years, humanity has gone through a massive re-architecture of civilization. It's what led to the change from monarchy to democracy. It's what led from the, chain, the change from tribes to clans. And potentially we're sitting on one of these new evolutions, an evolution that potentially recognizes that the borders we've created and the currencies that confine us to one economy or another were artificial constructs that we built because of these historical realities that maybe don't exist anymore. And now you lay into that. I'm going to bring this back to cryptocurrencies and the blockchain, I promise. You lay into that this idea that now the world is a connected marketplace, with some exceptions, with some kind of outliers that remain disconnected, um, but we still protect ourselves and contain ourselves and, and, and put frictions between our, within our commerce and within the economies that we've built. So if we don't organize people based on geography, then how do we organize them? Um, is anybody familiar with this company, Valve? Does this ring a bell? For entrepreneurs in the room, it might be a, a case study that you've seen before. Valve is not a company that many people know, but Valve made pretty interesting, caught people's attention in 2012, and they published their employee handbook for everyone to see and everybody to read. And the reason it was so interesting is because Valve created a company that essentially said, we don't want to have a single layer of hierarchy within our company. I want an employee to join this company and be able to decide on their own, do I want to be on the finance team or this product team or that marketing team? Or, and if they change their minds halfway through the week, they can just pick up their desk and move to another team and just join that team and start operating. Valve tried to implement this idea of a flat organization, completely flat, completely autonomous at the employee level. They had challenges. There's all sorts of interesting case studies of how this succeeded and or failed, depending on people's perspective. But Valve, long before cryptocurrencies became a topic, introduced this idea that flat, decentralized organizations might be a better way to react to the needs of their customers, to understand the data they were getting from the market, to help decide how they were going to build products for the future. For those of you who aren't unfamiliar with Valve, you might be familiar with some of their products, which include many of the most popular video games of the last 10 or 20 years, uh, all of which were built in this flat organizational structure, long before cryptocurrencies. But what could the world look like at scale without so many hierarchies, without as many layers of hierarchy in front of us? So I'm going to talk to you about this idea of networks, and this is where it all kind of comes back together to what the blockchain is and what cryptocurrencies are. And so networks are essentially um, vast connected things of sovereign units. And these sovereign units could be everything from um, individuals to companies to governments to, uh, to local city-states. Um, but sovereignty historically has always been something that we've thought of at the national level. Sovereignty of a, of a country delegated down to its provinces, delegated down to its municipalities, and in some cases the authority delegated down to its companies and individuals. Um, but in a full network of sovereign units, then all of a sudden we can go back to something that looks a lot like what are sovereign individuals, what are sovereign products and services, what are sovereign cities, and what are sovereign autonomous organizations. Um, all this stitched together in some sort of big global fabric or global technology that pulls us all together. Um, to give you a couple of examples on all of these individual buckets, a sovereign individual seems like an obvious, an obvious thing, but if, again, if I go back to the example of Facebook, it's not so obvious. I mean, are, am I really a sovereign individual when Facebook monetizes my data without my permission? 
or when Google makes advertising decisions without my permission or without my opt-in. So all of a sudden, can we pull that back? Can we go back to a model where I actually am in control of my own online activity? I'm in control of how my data is monetized, and maybe I'm actually getting a cut in that transaction. Sovereign products, you know, we're already starting to see the advent of autonomous cars. Some people think that autonomous cars may go all the way to being cars that don't have an owner, cars that are managed and operated by artificial intelligence that can charge their own fees and fill their own electricity equivalents of a gas tank, and now the product itself is a sovereign unit connected to a human who uses it on a daily basis or whatever the case might be. And then at the city level, you know, the, this network, you know, at one point in history, we were a, a collection of city-states that connected to each other through trade and commerce, and we organized ourselves based on the needs to grow the economies of scale. So we pulled together in, in nations and, and, and kingdoms to, to be able to take advantage of that. And in the sovereign autonomous organization, which is probably the most weird of these, um, this is where I think there's an interesting kind of parallel. I don't know. If, if I were to say... Many of you are not familiar with, with the blockchain space, so I'll, I'll try to sh tell you this story uh, without getting too technical. But about two or three years ago, there's a blockchain technology called Ethereum. Does that name ring a bell to many people? Founded by a Canadian, now probably the second largest blockchain system in the world. Uh, on the Ethereum network, something was created called the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. It was a, it was a piece of software that, for all intents and purposes, operated like a venture capital fund. People could put money into it, and they could earn a voting right based on the amount of money they put in. With no governing body, with no escrow bank account, with no legal structure other than a piece of software that everybody trusted to hold their money. So everybody took Ether, the cryptocurrency of Ethereum, they put it into this contract, this digital contract, and they said, if I put a dollar in, then I get equivalent of one vote. And then people could write proposals into this software saying, I want you to fund my company or fund my project or fund my idea. All of a sudden, that proposal would get pushed out to people who had votes, and they would be able to review these proposals and vote based on their weighted contribution. The DAO was a crazy idea. The DAO raised $170 million in 30 days with no fund manager, with no pre-existing reputation, with no anything. It subsequently got hacked, and it was a terrible failure story for the blockchain industry, but showed this interesting opportunity to design things in a way that we've never thought of designing them before. Um, and we're starting to see this increasingly. There's, you're starting to see organizations like mine that are nonprofit software organizations. There's a model in our future roadmap where we pull ourselves out of the equation, where we turn all decision-making over to the users of our software, where they earn voting rights based on their contributions and usage of that software, and where we essentially become stewards but not managers and not owners, where there are no shareholders, there are just contributors and users. And this starts to introduce a whole new array of what types of services and products we might see entering the market in the future. Now, I'm going to step back for a second and take this to... And so, yeah, a couple of examples. I mean, what these networks look like before I go into an explanation of how they work. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, with a bias, I put our own network up there. But Ethereum and Bitcoin, you'd probably be familiar with. These are decentralized, completely unowned economically powered and secured networks, meaning every contributor on these networks that is participating is incentivized to secure the network at the same time. This is what we call mining in the Bitcoin world. There's th many different models emerging in the cryptocurrency world, but it's essentially how do you create a governance model that is powered around the world by individuals and companies that all are essentially operating on an equal playing field where the idea of hierarchy doesn't exist. There is no authority in the Ethereum network or in the Bitcoin network or the Aeon network. And it's 
unscalable and it doesn't work yet and it's slow and it's expensive, but we're just starting to prove that it might be possible in the future. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about more about how that fits into some of these businesses and the types of businesses that we're seeing because the startup ecosystem growing on top of these market on top of these networks is enormous. We saw more venture capital raised, and I shouldn't say venture capital, we saw more capital raised in Canada through cryptocurrency towards blockchain companies in 2017 than venture capital that went into artificial intelligence, which is getting you know, lots of headlines in Canada, particularly in Toronto. Uh, so there's a new type of company emerging, a new type of organizational structure emerging that might change a lot of the fabrics of society and corporate structures. So shifting this to the blockchain, what is the blockchain and how does it potentially become this new global infrastructure that I'm talking about? Um, Stepping back in history, there's a lot of analogy that gets drawn to the internet. And I want to give you some context as to where I think we are in this industry, because there's a lot of consumer expectation today around blockchains and cryptocurrencies. And I think, you know, rightfully so, it's an exciting technology, but a little bit premature in my mind for that consumer interest to be too, too excited. Um, the internet took about, depending on who you ask, 50 to 60 years to evolve to what we know today as the internet. Uh, some of the earliest research and projects that led to the modern internet started in the late 1950s. But essentially, the modern internet is a collection of these things we call protocols, these 12 protocols that make up the internet. TCP IP being the very common one that most people have heard of. It's the way that information packets are switched between computers online. But everything from SMTP, which is the, the, the backbone of how you send emails, to HTTP, which is the framework for building websites, these are what we have hidden behind the scenes of the modern internet so that average users could turn on their phones, go on their computers and consume information or publish information or participate in these markets. Most of these people don't know. They don't know how they work. They don't know the mechanics behind them. They don't need to. They just, they, you know, you turn your laptop on and all of a sudden Google pops up. Um, the blockchain is kind of going through a similar era. What's quite different, though, is in the time of the Internet, these were projects funded by government. They were projects funded by academic institutions. They were research initiatives. In some cases, they were, they were motivated by defense contracts. They needed, you know, uh, secure ways to transmit information for, for, for you know, for uh, the Department of Defense was a big funder behind the DARPAnet. Um, there was no profit design into the fabric of the Internet. These were open source, free technologies that became this kind of common communication protocol that we all use. Um, so naturally, there was no private companies involved at this time. The 30 or 40 years before the beginning of the dot-com era, these were the organizations that led the charge. Uh, and, and I think you look back to that era, and we really relied heavily on government to do most of our big game-changing innovations, whether it was you know, space travel or the invention of the Internet or many of these types of technologies that were funded and, and driven by government. Um, Today, you'll look at the blockchain space, you'll notice it's quite different because it's a collection of for-profit or, or, or commercially motivated organizations. What's changed is that we think the new Internet, what we call the Internet of Value or Web 3.0, is also going to be a collection of many, many protocols. Those protocols are still undefined. They still haven't come to market quite yet. But there's going to be a pretty significant difference that for the first time, we'll be able to monetize those layers of protocol. We'll be able to create economic value on top of these systems that never have had economic value before. So these con this concept of cryptocurrencies, or what we often call tokens in these online marketplaces, is the, this economic fuel that powers these technologies. The fact that if I provide software, I can earn money, and if I use software, I spend money. And this kind of peer-to-peer -peer marketplace emerges where there are no 
centralized web monopolies. So you can reimagine an internet that doesn't have a Google, or you can reimagine an internet that doesn't centralize power behind a Facebook, where every average peer on this network has an equal participating role in the network. And the more they contribute, the more they earn. And we can kind of go back to what some of the early inventors of the internet, people like Tim Berners-Lee, who's kind of credited as the inventor of the World Wide Web, says was always the intent behind the internet, a completely peer-to-peer -peer communication protocol. Even though today, it's not a peer-to-peer -peer communication protocol. Today, my on-ramp is Google, and your on-ramp is probably Google, so it really is a Google-to-Google -Google, uh, communication protocol that we happen to, you know, give them access to our data to use. So the value is quite different here. We can build a completely new economy on top of this new layer of the Internet. And it, there's a huge value proposition and a huge incentive to be the winner to do that. So you'll look around the cryptocurrency industry today and you'll see hundreds, if not thousands, of companies and projects proposing that they have a better way to build one of these new protocols to become part of this new fabric. Uh, and the reason is because um, there's a huge economic incentive to do so. If the cryptocurrencies behind these systems become the fuel to access these systems, then those systems are going to become worth billions, if not trillions, of dollars. By some estimates, in fact, the, the CEO of Cisco last year tried to put a price tag on what the value of the Internet was. Not the value of the companies built on the Internet, but if you had to create a purchasable value for the Internet itself, Cisco estimates it at $19 trillion. The value of the global GDP is about $78 to $80 trillion, most of which is moving in a direction that it'll become Internet-based GDP. It'll be digital commerce. So maybe the Internet should be worth $80 trillion. And that's still with this concept where we have an enormous amount of locked-up value and artificial frictions that we leave in the middle of this economy. So potentially we're talking about a network and an economy that could be worth multiples of that that could be powered by this new concept of blockchains, decentralized infrastructures. But where we are today is that this continues to be true. Most people don't know we exist. Most people don't understand what we're building. And naturally so, I would put ourselves not, you know, some people say, hey, we're in 1995 if we were compared to the Internet. I'd put ourselves probably farther back into like the 1970s, or early 1980s. We're still defining what the protocols are. Um, you know, TCP IP, I'm sure, is a term that many of you have heard before, even though you may not know what it is. You may not know that there was a time when TCP IP was going, un undergoing a huge amount of debate whether it would become the Internet's protocol or something called OSI would become the Internet's protocol. And long story short, researchers and academics debated this, you know, for, for decades to land on TCP IP as the modern Internet protocol that we used. We're still at that early stage debate. We don't know what TCP IP is going to be in the blockchain era. We're still debating at that level. So we're still very, very early on. 99% of our market doesn't know we exist yet. There's this other kind of misconception in the market that the first technology to enter in this space, in our case, Bitcoin, will probably become the long-term market winner. Um, I've just gone back and pulled a couple of funny examples to say, well, we all know very well that first-to-market doesn't always mean that you're going to be the winner, right? So uh, Ash Jeeves versus Google. Many of you probably remember Ask.com. Um, you know, Friendster predated Facebook. Um, the, the Windows tablet significantly predated the iPad. And all of these things kind of show, point to the same trend. We go through evolutions of technology naturally. So right now we're at this stage. Bitcoin and Ethereum are a massive portion of the market, a massive portion of what we all consider to be this huge opportunity of cryptocurrency, which just for context, today the cryptocurrency market is worth about $200 billion on trading market caps. $200 billion is massive compared to where it was two years ago, but it's insignificant compared to the dot-com bubble that peaked at $4 trillion in 2001 or 
you know, the value that Cisco places on the internet at $19 trillion. So we're still very much in kind of the first inning of this evolution happening. Um, and now we're going through this thing. If you're closer to the market, you probably understand what I'm talking about. You were going through this thing that we all like to refer to as the crypto winter. We've lost about 75% of the value in cryptocurrency in the last six months, and it's making a lot of people wonder, is there a long-term promise here? Uh, did we all just buy into some fumes and we, we don't really know what the outcome's going to be? And I think this is kind of a natural part of the evolution of most new technologies and most new systems is that we have to go through, you know, you're probably familiar with things like the Gartner hype cycle. Many people think we kind of hit our first peak in the Gartner hype cycle. We're now coming back down into what some call the trough of disillusionment, uh, which is uh, separating uh, the men from the boys, for lack of a better term, because there's lots of people running out of money, lots of people losing their initial investments, and obviously making governments and regulators quite nervous. We've been deeply involved in conversations with the Ontario Securities Commission as a simple example, because there are average retail people putting money into these systems, hoping for massive returns and profits, uh, which is a big concern and a big risk. So we have to keep coming back and remember, 99% of the market hasn't shown up yet. So you know, the expectations that people are placing on this technology seem to be a little bit premature. Um, again, going back to the Cisco example, we don't know what this, and this Internet of Value term is something that was kind of popularized by Don Tapscott and his son Alex Tapscott, who are well-known authors at this point, who wrote The Blockchain Revolution, along with a number of other books. But um, the idea that what we did on the Internet historically is we opened up tr uh, means of communication for people to be able to exchange information. Some people talk about the Web 1.0 era being essentially the global library where all existing information in the world became available for anybody to read and see. Web 2.0 became the global publishing network where all of a sudden we could all become our own publishers. We could write things on Facebook and on Twitter and Wikipedia and all these things where we could share our ideas along with consuming others' ideas. And Web 3.0 is where we think value comes into the equation, where all of a sudden mo a monetary layer gets built into these systems. Where today, you, you probably are asking yourselves, well, what do you mean? I already transact online. I have a PayPal account, and I use e-transfers. And, um, you know, if you're American, you use Venmo. But in reality, those are just portals to an offline financial system. They're portals into our banks. They're portals into a very, very outdated legacy financial system. We don't have a native money over IP system for lack of a better term, until cryptocurrencies emerge where we can now natively interact online. But it does pose huge threats and huge risks to traditional economies because these are currencies and forms of value that are not governed by our traditional means of governance. They're not governed by our central banks. They're not regulated by our elected officials. Uh, and in some parts of the world, that's extremely exciting. I mean, in China, people are using this to get around capital controls that the Chinese government enforces. But in other parts of the world, it kind of begs the question of maybe we want some layer of oversight and government involved in how we make economic decisions. So it's an ongoing debate that we don't know the answer to quite yet, but, you know, long story short, the cat's out of the bag. So we can't uninvent this technology at this point. So we have to think about how do we adjust our governance structures to reflect this new technology as it grows in our lives. And what does this mean for Canada? I mean, I, I, most of our organization is headquartered here. I think weirdly, and for some random coincidence, and I think this is probably the result of decades and decades of pretty intelligent government investment into our educational system and our research, that we have a disproportionate number of very talented people in this country. In the cryptocurrency industry specifically, you'll find across the world a strange number of Canadians. Um, and, you know, it, very true to our Canadian roots, we, we like to 
breed the talent here and, and send them on their way to go develop you know, economic value for some other country. Uh, Silicon Valley often gets the, the, the vast benefit there. But Canada has this enormous opportunity to revisit its perspective on a new industry. We've always seen ourselves, in fact, Pat told me when I first came to PEI that he likes to call PEI the Silicon Island, uh, you know, inferring that, we're, that you could build something here quite similar to Silicon Valley. Um, I'd like to go a step further and say, in fact, that the next generation of companies are going to be larger than the last. They're going to be significantly more impactful than the last, and there's no reason that that hub could not be built elsewhere. And right now, it's a, it's a simple matter of a couple of little changes in how we view this technology, a couple of little changes in perception that might lead us to welcoming entrepreneurs and these technology companies from around the world to coming here. If you're active in the cryptocurrency industry today, you're likely incorporated in one of like 10 jurisdictions, and none of them are... The, the, the good jurisdictions. <laughs> you're probably, and I shouldn't say good, but I mean, they're generally the same jurisdictions you'll find the online poker sites uh, uh, hanging out in. So you're, you're incorporating yourself in the Isle of Man or Malta or Cyprus or, or the, you know, the British Virgin Islands or whatever the case might be, because we're all escaping lack of clarity. We're escaping uncertainty because we have governments that still haven't fully caught up to what this means and then had that translate down into how our laws are written, how our regulations are written, and how we think about tax and securities law and all these things that are completely different. You know, we still mostly, when we're looking at securities regulation, we compare ourselves in the U.S. to a, a piece of um, common law precedent that dates back to the 1930s. We're now trying to govern a 2018 technology based on laws that were drafted in the 1930s. It's a very difficult thing to do when you're, and this is where governance becomes an incre incredibly important obstacle that we need to think about. But in Canada, we're doing a lot of interesting work. We launched something quite recently called the Blockchain Technology Coalition of Canada. Myself, my co-founder, you may know, is, is Michelle Romanoff from Dragon's Den, whose company is now making a full pivot into the blockchain industry. Um, another uh, pretty successful Toronto-based entrepreneur, Albert Lai, who runs the biggest gaming, mobile gaming company in Canada, all now looking at this as the next layer of technology to change the future of their companies. Uh, and so we identified pretty early on that at the provincial and federal level, there needed to be more advocacy, there needed to be more education, there just needed to be more dialogue with policymakers. So we're starting that process quite aggressively in the fall. Uh, we're launching that at the Elevate Tech Fest that's happening in September in Toronto uh, to start opening up some of these lines of communication. We've had a number of great conversations in Ottawa as well as at Queen's Park, and we're going to try to translate that across the country uh, to the different provincial legislatures to make sure that we're thinking about this appropriately because I think there's potentially an unfair advantage if we take the first step. Most entrepreneurs in this industry would love to have a sophisticated and mature country to land in. They don't want to go to Cyprus. They don't want to go to the Isle of Man. They would love to come to PEI. They'd love to come to Canada. It's just a matter of creating an environment where they can have some certainty when they arrive. And I think we'd see a huge floodgates of talent and capital coming into this country, which would be beneficial to all of us. Um, I'll leave you with that. Thank you so much for having me.